It's Thursday, June 9th, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavrotis, Senior Writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he's well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, there's a lot to talk about today. Uh, California held its primary on Tuesday, and I'm looking forward to hearing your analysis, gentlemen. Uh, Bill, in your upcoming column, appropriate titled Of Primary Importance for California on Your Mind this week, you, ha- you hit several different angles on why voters cast ballots the way they did, especially on the issue of crime. Uh, Chesa Boudin, San Francisco's progressive district attorney, was recalled by nearly 60% of voters. Meanwhile, Rick Caruso, a wealthy businessman and former president of the Los Angeles Police Commission, received 5% more votes than his opponent, Karen Bass, Congresswoman Karen Bass, and will face her in a runoff election this November to become LA's next mayor. Uh, gentlemen, uh, What do you make of this election? Is it a backlash against California progressivism, as some conservatives would like to think? Uh, Bill, why don't you start with that? Um, I think it. I view it this way. Uh, The national press took a very uh, big interest in the California primary, uh, primarily because, no pun intended, because of uh, Chase Boudin's uh, recall in San Francisco. He's uh, soon to be uh, departing San Francisco uh, district attorney now that voters recalled him by a margin of about 60 percent to 40 percent. Pretty decisive vote. Uh, And so they use that as kind of a question of whether or not uh, progressivism was in trouble if it doesn't play in San Francisco. And the idea uh, that there's an earthquake in California is the very word that the Drudge Report used on the morning of the election, political earthquake in San Francisco and Los Angeles uh, because of the issue of crime front and center. Um, It was potent in those two cities, but I would point you elsewhere around the state where a couple of sheriffs ran in primaries and lost. Um, but also up and down the ticket, Democrats just did not suffer in general. So I think you have to drill down into specifically the San Francisco uh, situation, plus also Los Angeles with uh, Rick Caruso, who uh, made the uh, mayoral runoff against Karen Bass. We'll get to that in a moment. So um, here's what I noted about Boudin. I'd like to get Lee's thoughts on this as well. Uh, first of all, he was... Um, kind of a dead man walking going into this election in this regard. He was elected in 2019. If you go back and look at that election, not a single prominent Democrat in San Francisco. <clears throat> I'm talking the, the mayor, London Breed, the former mayor, now Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, the former mayor, now Senator Dianne Feinstein, the former district attorney, now Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. They all backed Boudin's opponent. The most prominent Democrat who supported him, guys, was Bernie Sanders. That's not a great leg to be standing on in San Francisco necessarily. So he didn't have the establishment behind him this recall, as did Newsom last September when Democrats circled the wagon around their governors. That was problem number one with him. The second problem, uh, Lee, when you looked at this election, uh, he got beat up relentlessly on TV with very effective ads uh, from people who used to work in that office and left out of disgust, but also regular San Franciscans who just just, expressed their disgust with the crime situation in the city. And Boudin uh, tried to rectify this in the last week of the election by trotting out statistics saying, hey, if you look at column A, column B, column C, when it comes to theft, homicide, and so forth, things aren't really that bad. But here's the problem, guys, in politics, and I've, I've experienced this firsthand being on part of a lot of losing campaigns. You may try to sell the voters on statistics. For example, the president leave is constantly trying to show you economic growth to say things aren't that bad. But that does not jibe with people are experiencing and feeling and seeing firsthand, especially in San Francisco, where we've all seen the videotape of of uh, drugstores being ransacked. And we saw the pretty jarring footage last December of the really posh Union Square shopping center turned into something of a combat zone with police everywhere. So you may try to sell voters on statistics, but anecdotally, they see something different. And it was time for Boudin to go. Now, um, I'll curtail the filibuster at this point and get Lee in this. 
Um, London Breed has to choose a interim successor, and the San Franciscans will vote on a full-time DA after that. Uh, much as the same situation as with the school board recall earlier uh, in San Francisco about five months ago. Let's see who she puts in as a successor. Is it somebody who's tougher on crime than Boudin or goes down the same path as social warrior? And again, to the idea of an earthquake in San Francisco, it's still a city where Democrats outnumber uh, uh, Republicans nine to one. If it really was an earthquake underway, I think you'd see recalls against the rather lunatic board of supervisors and you see the mayor living a much more threatened existence. Lee, Lee what did you read of that election? Yeah, so the Boudin, <clears throat> the Boudin issue, um, I mean, played across the country, played, it played globally as well. Um, I mean, he's a very, he's a very polarizing figure. I don't say that pejoratively, but just given his background is the fact that both of his parents were members of the Weathermen, the, the, the terrorist group in the 1960s, um, right. and both of his parents went to prison. Um, I don't recall the specific charge, Bill, was it? Was it for was it for his was it for attempted murder? It was for it was for a very, it was for a very severe felony, and yeah. I think his parents were in school were were in high school were in were in that prison for a very very long time. Um, <clears throat> so he started out um, obviously not having the support of the police, which is difficult. Um, and then you noted that literally almost all of this, almost all of the support within San Francisco and California were for his opponent. His most prominent, his most prominent backers were, were Bernie Sanders and a very progressive district uh, DA. I, th I think from Chicago, and uh, I mean Chicago is just a complete train wreck from the standpoint of uh, from safety, from the standpoint of safety. Forty, I believe, forty-seven people were shot over the Memorial Day weekend in Chicago. Right. Forty-seven people shot. So. Um, so his problem really was that he could not show any accomplishments. Now I have been um, I've been as I've been a severe critic of Boudin um, for a long, long time because the city has really lost its bearings when it comes to crime. The break-in issue, um, the drug abuse issue, the fact that a lot of sidewalks and a lot of neighborhoods within the city have basically been co-opted. By crime. Um, and a lot of it is drug abuse, but what is really running those neighborhoods are organized gangs that are selling drugs. Um, so, Bill, you hit the nail on the head. People don't feel safe. Um, and I think it was I think it was the New York Times that ran a story about this and interviewed a, uh, you know, sort of a classic, what you would call a representative San Francisco progressive. It was a 78 year old woman. Um, who uh, who still drives a car with flower power, you know, on the on the bumper, and um, and I think she made this quote something like, "I guess I'm not as liberal as I thought I was," and I thought that statement was so telling because um, the issues about Chase Bedeen um, and Bill, I this is not this is not a seismic shift in politics. What really worried me about that about that remark she made during that interview with the New York Times, they, these, aren't, these aren't political issues or partisan issues. These are simply common sense issues about the functional role of government. And the primary role of government is to protect its citizens. That's not a partisan issue. And I'll just put a little bit more bluntly, if enough people wake up in the morning and walk outside and they see someone defecating on the sidewalk and they find that their car's been broken into for the third time in the last six months. Yeah, they're looking for change and they're not looking for Jason Boudin to be talking about footnotes on what he's accomplished. He really hadn't accomplished anything. And there were some very, very important, you know, headline stories about people being killed um, by felony offenders who were out on parole who or probation who shouldn't have been out on parole or probation. So, it, it, it's a no-brainer that San Francisco voted him out, um, but this does not mean that San Francisco voters have come to their senses. Right. So, you know, I think San Francisco has learned a painful lesson here that when you elect people um, to do a job and they don't do the job they're elected to do, trouble ensues. Uh, this was part of the takeaway when the uh, three uh, Board of Education officials recalled Lee. Um, they are elected to deal with schools primarily during COVID when to reopen schools. And they were spending their time dealing around figuring out how to rename schools rather than reopen schools. So out they went. And with Boudin, it's very simple. He is the district attorney. That means he is the city's top prosecutor, city and county's top prosecutor. 
prosecutor, I should say. But his approach to the job is I'm not going to prosecute. And so trouble ensues. We don't do that. So there's a lesson here. And I think uh, London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, learned the lesson as well. She was uh, at one point an advocate of defunding police and shifting law enforcement and uh, money uh, elsewhere. And in December, Lee, she gave a rather impassionate uh, speech in which she announced that she was reversing course, was putting more money in law enforcement. And again, if you're Chesa Boudin and you already didn't have her support to begin with, uh, you could just hear out on a limb and you could just see the mayor kind of sawing you off behind you saying that, you know, things are awful. And she had a very specific phrase for the state of the city, which we can't say here on our family podcast. So yeah, the idea of a revolution in San Francisco, no, only if really it, uh, if the angry masses aim higher and, and target the board of supervisor. But let's look at Los Angeles, Lee, and uh, closer to home for you and the mayor's race, which I've been following with great fascination. Uh, because I looked at this race um, about a year ago when Rick Caruso, the, the billionaire developer who's now to run off with uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass, uh, I looked at that race, Lee, and I saw this is 1993 Redux in Los Angeles. And it's a city that's had some serious problems with crime. It's having some real challenges with the economy right now. It has very touchy race relations, maybe not as inflamed as they were in 1993 after the Rodney King riots, uh, but it's a city really on edge. And in that race, along came a figure named Richard Reardon, who was a Republican, uh, a businessman. He owns the uh, the pantry, the wonderful restaurant in uh, downtown LA, Best Pancakes in Los Angeles, shameless plug. Uh, Reardon ran a law and order campaign, and he targeted specifically voters out in the San Fernando Valley, Lee, who generally are more conservative in their sensibilities, and they really hate downtown Los Angeles and the politicians who live there. So that swept Reardon into office. Uh, and I looked at um, I looked at uh, Caruso running almost 30 years later and thinking it's the same dynamics and he could run as the same guy. But a couple of differences to note uh, here, Lee. Number one, uh, Mr. Caruso was a few years ago Republican. He then dropped the Republican affiliation, became an NPP, nonpartisan um, uh, non-party partisan uh, in California. And he uh, then switched right before the election, he switched over to Democrat. And that was as simple as his consultant saying that, you know, you got to make the top two in this thing. And it's a lot easier if there's a D at the end of your name and not an NPP that nobody knows what that is. So Crusoe is not running quite as a Republican that Reardon was, but here's the question, Lee, moving forward. This is what I wrote about my California column. He now faces kind of a crossroads of a campaign in terms of strategic choices. Polling shows that he's actually doing better than you might expect among Latino voters. That's not a surprise given COVID conditions we've talked about. And polling shows that he's doing better among African-American voters, African-American males in particular. That's a surprise because Karen Bass is one of the most prominent uh, black politicians in California, if not America. She was on Al Gore, uh, excuse me, she was on Joe Biden's shortlist for vice president in 2020. So here's the choice for Caruso leave. Does he do the unconventional and go after minority votes and try to portray himself as a different kind of Democrat in the regard? Or does he trot out the ridden playbook, which is go out to the valley and just bash Los Angeles' status quo, which Karen Bass is a part of, and talk about crime? And to me, Lee, the sensible thing is to do the latter, go out to the valley, talk about the conditions, and go after the failed status quo. Yeah, um, interesting strategy, Bill. Um, I mean, fascinating from the standpoint that, yeah, Rick Caruso looks like, <laughs> looks like Reardon. You know, I don't know, 20, 25 years younger. I mean, whatever that age difference is, but white male, um, lots of money. He spent 40 million. <laughs> Bill, I wish I had that money to throw around <laughs> for something as unpleasant. Lee, Lee, I'm a, Lee, I'm a big fan of children should be able to sue their parents to stop them from spending money on political campaigns because <laughs> they're the careers of kids and you're seeing the kid, you're seeing now he's a billionaire, so he's not exactly bleeding in the dry. But at some point, Steve Forbes went through this with his kids. In 1996, he ran against Bob Dole and he had cash to spend. And then in 2000, he wanted to run this really kind of chaotic campaign against George W. Bush. He started selling family assets, buildings and islands and things like that. And if you're the kid, the family, hey, wait a second, dad, stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Time to go to court. Um, right. Yeah. 40 million. 40 million. Um, I, the, the L.A. mayor's job, uh, I think, has got to be one of the most unpleasant political jobs in the country. Um, it's, it's a very weak constitutional job, actually. And this is one of the challenges he will yeah. find if he's elected because the mayor doesn't have much of a say, for example. And I think one of the central problems, which is the management of the Los Angeles Unified School District, the mayor does have the ability to budget. The mayor has executive authority and the mayor has a bully pulpit. He can go to the ballot. But, yeah, it's not like the mayor can really knock heads and get things done in the kind of the classic no. big city. That's like Dick Daly or someone like that. 
No, no, this is this is not Chicago with Dick Daly. Is is the opposite. So yeah, you mentioned LAUSD, which um, which you know has been. I mean, it's been a complete mess almost. You know, I mean, for decades. Um, I mean, to give you an idea, my my parents pulled me out of LAUSD back in the 1960s. Uh, so we're looking at, you know, 50 plus years of failure. A a and it's something that's gotten worse over time. It's gotten much worse uh, since the pandemic. So, yeah. So what, you know, so what is he going to do about that? He, he can't do a lot other than try to sway people. Um, and, you know, LA is now 48% um, Latino. 26% non-Latino white, 15% Asian. So that's basically your voting block. Um, blacks are 9% of LA voters. And when you take into account voter turnout, um, whites, about two thirds of LA white, non-Latino non whites are turning out. 50% or less of the other demographics. Actually, Asian Americans are turning out 65%, 70%. So Bill, I don't know, you know, in terms of strategy, and yeah, you know, the idea that Caruso you know, suddenly became a Democrat. Um, I think if I was Karen Bass's advisors, I think I would jump all over that um, and so they, say this. He is not a Democrat. He is a Democrat. He's a Democrat just to try to get the door open. Um, but Latino voters, I don't think will be all that well connected with Karen Bass for a variety of reasons, one of which is that she's um, at close to seven years old. She is a solid piece of the failed status quo within Los Angeles, somewhere broadly California. I mean, right. you know, she's going to double down on all of the policies that you and I think have failed. Um, she is not going to be for school reform. Um, she, in terms of homelessness, she's not going to come out and say, hey, why does it cost you know, more to build a cookie cutter, 300 square foot studio apartment for a homeless person. Why does it cost more to build that than a comparably sized Ritz-Carlton hotel room facing the ocean on Kanapali Beach? Why? She's not going to ask that question. She's not going to discuss the unpleasant issue that solving homelessness means solving drug abuse situations. So... Hispanics are a voting block as a demographic that doesn't really connect well with her um, with her positions. Yeah. And Bill, it's interesting when you talk about um, black males and really black voters, unless unless it gets unless it's really really close. Um, and I suspect, and I don't know, I don't know, Bill. What do you think De Leon's going to do? I mean, he finished third. I think he finished third. Um, Caruso, I think, was forty two. Right. percent bass i think was around 36 percent mm -hmm. de leon was way back at seven percent um but i don't see him throwing his support to caruso yeah. um but if he throws his support you know he's latino if he throws his support to bass i don't know if that's really going to move his you know the people who support him so given the demographic makeup of LA today in 2020 versus 93, I think I would really be trying to talk to Latino voters because yeah. they, you know, that's, you get Latino voters and you get non-Latino white voters and they're going to be relatively sympathetic to the same message, then he wins. What, you know, if I was one of the advisors, what I would worry about is, you know, if you spent $40 million and, um, you know, you got 42%. Um, so you might have to spend another 40 plus million and you still might lose. Um, I, if, if I was a betting man, even odds, um, I'm going with Caruso because LA is such a mess right. that Karen Bass is going to be tied to that. And if I was Caruso's advisors, I would just hammer away on that point that she is the status quo. She is the reason why why LA has become what it is. Yeah, so it's very similar to the San Francisco recall election in this regardly. Um, Boudin pushed back at the 11th hour. He tried out the crime stats, but he also tried to have you believe that this was a Republican cabal. It was a bunch of Republican right-wingers trying to throw him out of office. And Gavin Newsom very effectively played the same card, but Newsom had the luxury of pointing to Larry Elder and photos of Elder with Donald Trump to underlie that, where Boudin was just kind of invoking a boogeyman that wasn't there. Um, 
Bass will probably try something similar with uh, Caruso. She'll question his beliefs. He's a born-again Democrat, so yes, she'll play with that. He's a little fuzzy on abortion, so we're going to see the potency of the abortion issue now in a, in a prominent California race as well. Um, where else will she go? She'll go after his wealth, I imagine, which she already has about him trying to buy the election. I think that's a vastly overrated thing. That certainly didn't stop Donald Trump, for example, in 2016. Uh, but here's the problem with that strategy. is why I think it's analogous to San Francisco. Once again, you're trying to sell people on concepts. Who is this guy? What does he believe? And the other guy's running on something very simple. Look around, folks. Open your eyes and what do you see? You know, sensingly, when I have friends who come into California for the first time in Los Angeles, they always want to, you know, rent the car at LAX and go out to the beach. And I say, well, why don't you drive inland a little bit and go drive around downtown for an hour and tell me what you see? Um, and it's the eye-popping test if they do that or just drive around even the beach communities. And what do they see? They see the homeless encampments and they see things look kind of squalid and they see people, you know, relieving themselves by the side of the road and things like that. And it's just if you're an out-of-stater, you have this image of California on in your mind. This is really kind of a shocking thing. And I think Angelinos like San Francisco's or San Francisco's are kind of tired of this. So I think it's a very potent thing for, for Caruso to tap into. I was thinking, by the way, Lee, we'll move on after this. Um, what if Caruso decided not to run for mayor, but set his sights higher for governor? And here's here's where kind of the California political system uh, fails him. Uh, Caruso could have run as a Democrat statewide against Newsom. Uh, but if you look at the results in that race, Lee Newsom, of course, gets over half the vote. Um, the second place finisher, Brian Dolly, a Republican state senator. Uh, last I checked, and you know, votes are still being counted in California, guys. They will be for the next three weeks. It's one of the real shortcomings we have out here because of all the mail-in votes. Anyway, I think last I looked, Lee, he had about 15, 16 percent of the vote. So Caruso would have had to figure out, how do I finish second against a Republican who has 15%? So he could have tried to run as a Democrat, Lee. Um, but in terms of an anti-Newsom vote being out there, I'm not sure that gets him 15% within the Democratic Party. He would have had to build upon independence. So you'd say, well, why not run as an independent? And here's the problem with that, and which I wrote about for the California on Your Mind column. We've been waiting for 10 years for independence to emerge in California as a result of our open primary system, the top two system we have now. The idea that in as very much in a state like New York, you'll find somebody who runs as something of a fusion candidate where they'll pick up third party support and run as a blend. It doesn't work that way. If you look at the governor's race, Lee, Michael Schellenberger ran. I think, by the way, you're you're doing an event, I think, with Schellenberger later this uh, this month on homelessness, I believe. Uh, give a shout out to that. But um, so Schellenberger uh, wrote the book San Francisco, which is, of course, very popular in conservative circles because it just addresses the city for what it's become. He is an expert on homelessness. Uh, he ran before uh, he ran once for governor in 2018 as a Democrat. He's now running as an NDP. He ran this time as an independent. And he didn't lack for coverage, Lee. He was on Fox News a lot. He was on the Joe Rogan podcast. He was on Bill Maher's HBO show. He really got around. And, you know, I wrote about this for Hoover. Um, it was a very intriguing concept of him running against Newsom in November because he could point out a lot of Newsom's vulnerabilities. And he didn't have the Republican baggage tied to him as other candidates do in California. Lee, last I checked on Schellenberger, he got about 4% of the vote. And this is a problem, plain and simple. Being an independent may be a wonderful concept for a November election in California, but it's proven to be death in the primaries because the primaries are a very small turnout and they're dominated by the two major parties. So if you're going to finish first or second in a statewide race in a primary in California, Lee, I think you have to be basically a unicorn. You have to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. You have to have incredible name recognition going in and you have to have an ungodly amount of your own money to spend to just get people to notice your campaign and vote for you. Otherwise, you're going to finish third. And that's just a problem that we're going to have in California for the foreseeable future. There's been a lot of talk about how to remedy this. Uh, Tom Campbell, the former state U.S. and, uh, and uh, state rep and uh, uh, former head of Department of Finance under Schwarzenegger, he is uh, formed what's called the Common Sense Party, which wants to bring more moderate people forward. But you're not seeing this great independent problem solver emerge, not quite yet. Caruso could have been that guy in Los Angeles, Lee, but again, his people made the calculation he needed to have a D at the end of his name to finish at least second in that primary. Yeah, and I think I think it was politically a brilliant move because the Republican Party in California, as we've talked about several times, um, is, I don't want to say beyond repair, but it needs new ideas and those new ideas haven't come in yet. So he did, you know, I mean, the, the ring was waiting there on the merry-go-round. He grabbed a wishes to say, I will be a fiscally conservative 
common sense, you're going to, I'm going to try to get you value for your tax dollars. We're going to make sure you're safe. We're going to deal with homeless much better than what the status quo has done. And I'll be a Democrat and I'll be, you know, I mean, there's some complex issues in terms of where his social and cultural values are, but um, you know, he'll be the middle of the road Democrat. Um, and surveys still show, even in LA, because of a large Hispanic demographic, that if you pitch to that audience, you're kind of pitching to roughly six, roughly two thirds of the voters. So I think it was a brilliant move. And and yeah, you know, I would love to see, I would, I would love to see Caruso versus Newsom, um, because he he has he has the money to be able to spend on that. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have, you know, I don't think he has his arm around Donald Trump, like sadly Larry Elder had. Uh, I'm sure he wishes that photo had never been taken um, because that really did him in. Um, and I think he was so unfairly, um, I think he was so unfairly criticized being called, you know, the black face of white supremacy is just, I mean, that's a joke. He, he grew up, he grew up with enormous racism. So yeah, I would I would love to see Caruso versus Newsom. I mean, I don't we won't get to see that because what Newsom will Newsom's going to be elected in November. Um, yeah, Dog has seventeen percent. Um, Bill, what do you think about you know? I had I've talked with Schellenberg. I love his ideas, mm -hmm. which include not only his views about homelessness but um, also nuclear power, uh, which is really a given if you want if you want if you want to make. If you really want to move the carbon needle, for those who really want to move the carbon needle, nuclear is the obvious way to go. Right. So much safer, so much less expensive today. Um, France gets close to 80% of their electric power from nuclear energy. No accidents, no casualties. So I thought he was a great candidate. But as you mentioned, I think he's at 4%. Um, Sean Collins is a Republican whom I spoke with. Um, Pasadena. Great, great ideas. Um, he got, what, 2%, 2.5%? Mm -hmm. um, and then um, there's a uh, another candidate, a woman. Um, is it Jenny Jenny Ledoux? Yep. And what, did she receive the state Republican Party's endorsement, or was it Dahl? Dahl got the state party endorsement. The last time I looked, Jenny was uh, running pretty close to Schellenberger, up around four percent. So she was around four percent. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great ideas. I mean, uh, uh, there were several candidates. Great ideas. They're not moving the needle. Um, so we're looking at uh, four more years of Gavin. Once we get to November, we'll cross the bridge and we'll come to it. We well, remember, folks, um, the California governor is something of a safe job in this regard. The last first term California governor to get the boot was a fellow named Lee. Excuse me. <laughs> sorry, Lee. But his name was Colbert Olson. Uh, he was uh, elected in 1938. He was very much an odd duck. He uh, was a Democrat uh, at a time in California, was uh, voting uh, Republican in gubernatorial elections. That's how long ago this was. He was kind of an aberration in that regard. Uh, he also was an aberration in that he uh, was born in Utah. He was actually a Mormon. Uh, raised in the Mormon church, and then he left the Mormon church and became an avowed atheist. And when he took the oath of office, he refused to say, so help me God, and reporters noticed that, and kind of trouble began at that point. Uh, that is now probably not a good way to start your governorship. He then uh, got into controversy. He gave a pardon to a uh, socialist who had been involved in a bombing in San Francisco in the 1920s. By 1942, California was on a wartime footing, and it was a very tense state and perfect opportunity for a prosecutor by the name of Earl Warren to come along and kick him out of office. So it was 80 years ago since then, first-term governors have been re-elected. I worked for one Pete Wilson in 1994. He was down by 23 points at one time. He won his race by 15. So it's a pretty secure job. Um, but Michelle Berger, I think this is a lesson here, Lee. You're running in a primary with a very small turnout. So it's not a very large audience of Californians. Yes, everyone has a ballot, but not everybody bothers to vote. They just are not tuned in. So you've got to find a way to capture people's attention in a very short period of time. And I, what I didn't see from his campaign, I know a couple of people who worked on it. I want to ask him about this. I didn't see a lot in social media. I just this to me was a campaign that was tailor made to probably do you know just bombing day and night on Instagram, on Facebook with videos to try to front up the audience. Also noticeably missing Lee, there was not the Ohio dynamic where if you remember the Senate race, um, Peter Thiel gets involved personally and he does an independent expenditure, something like fifteen million dollars on behalf of J.T. Vance, who is running uh, who is running in the primary, and that helps get 
uh, fans over the top, along with Trump's endorsement. You didn't see anything similar in California on behalf of Schellenberger. I don't know if he asked anybody like um, like uh, Teal for this, but you didn't see a big IE get trotted out uh, on his behalf, saying that, look, California is failing. You need to go in this direction, which would have bumped his numbers. But again, I think the biggest challenge, Lee, is when you don't have a D or an R at the end of your name at a primary, you're kind of on your own. You don't have the party infrastructure to tap into for endorsements or get on mailers or things like that. If you're not particularly well known like Schellenberger is outside of academic circles, um, what do you do? And so, yeah, it's just it's an unfortunate face plant. It would have been an intriguing race. And so now we go on to the kind of Bambi versus Godzilla race, which is a sitting California governor versus a state senator who's a nice guy. But the fact is he represents an 11 county expanse of rural California, which he doesn't have a lot of cloud, a lot of name recognition. And so Newsom's going to cruise to re-election. Yes, he has. Uh, Dahl has the disadvantage of being from a part of California that coastal California doesn't even know exists. Yeah. Um, and Dahl has good, in my opinion, he's got good ideas. He's a sensible person, thinks deeply. Um, not totally partisan, so he could make some changes. But um but yeah, I just don't see that happening. Bill, um, you know, I don't know if you followed the school superintendent race, but I just saw this earlier this morning. Um, so I write a lot about schooling for California on your mind. And California schools are among the worst in the country. Mm-hmm. And a statistic I mentioned before when we've talked about this is that the median Hispanic and black eighth grade student has mathematics proficiency barely above the third grade level. Mm-hmm. And, it, and if you think about that, it's just completely unacceptable. And so Tony Thurmond is the incumbent state school superintendent. He got the endorsement of, I think, every state newspaper. Um, and what surprised me about that is that there were no accomplishments mentioned in any of those endorsements and what was even more surprising is that when those when those uh, when those editorial writers were penning these pieces saying, yeah, we're 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 behind Tony Thurman, they talked about lack of accomplishment. They talked about the fact that he wasn't even in the room when Newsom was trying to negotiate deals with the teachers' unions about trying to get teachers back in the classroom, California being, I think, the last state to have in-person instruction. Um, and so I took a quick look at the primary results for state school superintendent. Um, and Thurman has a little over 45%. I don't know who the, and so I don't know who the challenger is going to be, but um, the two who are very close to that, one is a software architect named George Yang from um, the Silicon Valley area, ran as a Republican, got over 11% of the vote. Uh, so I don't know if it'll be him or a woman named uh, Ani, um, and I'm forgetting a last name. Um, she is a math teacher, I think fifth generation math teacher. He is talking uh, about relatively conservative values. She also got 11.5%. Uh, she's on the spectrum of where Tony Thurmond is, which is... Um, systemic bias within classrooms and within state education and dealing with racism. Uh, she's, a, she's a Black American. Um, but what struck me as interesting is that he didn't cross 50%. Um, at some level, it's surprising he got as much as he has, given that he has no accomplishments, as far as I know. And then you have two challengers, each at about 11.5%, one quite conservative, Asian American, the other Black American being quite liberal, and I think being genuinely very, very committed to the causes that she feels are worth fighting for, causes that she thinks Tony Thurmond is not delivering on, and educational quality issues that George Yang is not is not feeling that that Thurmond is, is delivering on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. The votes still need to be counted, but. Um, I thought it's interesting he got as much vote as he has. So to go back to your initial point about was this a seismic shift? I mean, you it's hard to believe accomplishing less than Tony Thurman accomplished as school as state school superintendent uh, in the last three and a half years and getting that many votes. But on the other hand, over half the state, you know, was looking for somebody else. So um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens as we get to November. About the SPI, Lee, this is a uh, the superintendent of public instructions. Uh, you've probably heard my rant about if Bill Whalen were to 
you know, go after California government, this office is abolished. Um, you can have an education secretary working for the governor, and that's just fine. The SPI, so in theory, it's a nonpartisan job, Lee, on the ballot. Uh, party affiliation is not listed, but he is a Democratic lawmaker, former Democratic lawmaker, and you can guess what, you know, which way, when he wets his finger, which way the wind blows for him. I'm looking at numbers here, Lee, in terms of financial numbers for this race, and this kind of tells you what you need to know. Tony Thurmond, total contributions, this is according to Ballotpedia, almost $1.5 million. Uh, George Yang, total contributions, Lee? $17,618. Now, I would love to go inside of Mr. Thurman's $1.5 million to see who the money comes from. And I got a sneaking suspicion. It's not necessarily not so many, you know, hardworking California households. It's going to be teachers unions. And therein lies the problem. Um, but what's interesting about Tony Thurman, he's black. He's a black man. And there's an opportunity to talk about black education in California, which has gone missing. And I think, Jonathan, this is probably a good segue to get into Lee's excellent column on reparations, because, Lee, what interests me here is California is debating how to atone for sins of the past. I look at California's school system, Lee, and I'm kind of upset about sins of the present, which is the just devastating black-white uh, gap in achievement. Yeah, uh, uh, Lee, you write this week um, about the interim report uh, for California's reparations task force. The theme of the report, as you explained in the article, is that white racism is the major factor that has set African-Americans uh, behind in this country and in the state. Um, but you go on to write that the report doesn't explain socioeconomic differences between Blacks and those of other non-whites. Uh, Lee, can you extrapolate on this point a little further and tell us what mechanism state might use to enact, enact reparations? And finally, uh, what you think should be done to help Blacks achieve prosperity in the Golden State? Yeah, so Jonathan, last week, um... A task force uh, to address reparations payments to Black Americans within California was um, was put together um, by Gavin Newsom. Um, I think the composition um, is is largely people who who were favorable towards this idea. So the report that they issued last week, which is which is almost 500 pages, I uh, I have not read the full report. I did focus on uh, two parts of the report, which were how the task force views um, current socioeconomic conditions facing Black Americans, and then um, the school system that we have in place and how well that performs for Black Americans. Um, so in a lot of policy circles, I mean, particularly in California, in democratic policy circles, there's just a knee-jerk, there's a knee-jerk explanation for why Black Americans struggle. And those words are white supremacy and systemic racism. Okay, so once you said those four, those two terms, those four words, for a lot of people, the conversation is over. You know, that's it. Blacks are struggling because of white supremacy and systemic racism. And if we could just figure out how to get rid of white supremacy, you hear Biden talking about this frequently. You hear Biden and Kamala Harris talking about systemic racism um, all the time. And so that view is you get rid of those issues and everything is everything, everything changes. Well, so I, I you know, so the simple point I made is that um, to try to help black Americans, we have to move beyond this mo this this monolithic lens of, uh, of terms that are so overused now that I think they've lost meaning. Um, you look at Asian Americans who face enormous racism, um, hate crimes against Asian Americans have increased within San Francisco. We were talking about Chase and Boudin earlier, increased nearly 600%. Um, one in six Asian Americans mentioned as being the target of a hate crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, one out of two um, Indians, um, so southern east, uh, southern Western Asians, report facing racism because of the way they look or they dress. Um, so racism is not just the purview of blacks, sadly, and as dehumanizing it is, it affects a lot of groups. But um, but blacks are unique in the fact that they have not made the same gains. So if you look at if you look at incomes for Asian Americans, this median household income of $86,000 per year. Um, and that is almost twice as high as the median household income of Black Americans of $44,000 a year. So you look at those numbers and what jumps out at you, what jumps out at you is 
it can't be white supremacy. It can't be systemic racism because the median Asian American household is earning twice as much as blacks. And, you know, I think at some level, the coup de gras is that Asian American households are earning a lot more than the median non-Hispanic white household. Um, $86,000 per year versus $77,000 per year. Um, Hispanic median household income is substantially higher than that of Black Americans, which is noteworthy because nearly a third of Hispanic, nearly a third of Hispanic, uh, Hispanic individuals are not fluent in English, which really shuts down a lot of the employment and earning opportunities for them. Black immigrants, Black immigrants who are much less familiar with American culture, society, institutions, Black immigrant households earn about a third more than Blacks born in the United States. So you look at these numbers and if you wanna, if you're serious about trying to make life easier, try to increase opportunity for Black Americans, you simply can't sit around and talk about white supremacy and systemic racism. And so what are some of the sources of these issues for black Americans? It's schooling. Um, a lot of black children go to horrifically performing schools, um, schools where less than, you know, less than 30% of all kids become proficient in math or English or science. So if you want to do something for Black Americans, the easiest way to do that, the low-hanging fruit is fix California's school system. And there's a lot of different ways to do that, ranging from hiring much better administrators, much better teachers at inner city schools, making sure high-speed internet is accessible for all families, expanding school programs outside of the schools, such as in the summers and after schools. Um, and these are just complete no-brainers from the standpoint of the research that's been done. Now, the report done by the Reparations Committee also talks about education, but none of the changes are the ones that I'm talking about. They have chosen to focus on white supremacy and racism. So what do they recommend? They want culturally relevant pedagogy. They want mandatory teacher anti-bias training. They want the elimination of racial bias, okay, whatever that is, in curriculum. They want the elimination of racial bias in the SAT and the LSAT, which is the law school admissions test and the MCAT, which is the medical admissions test. They want the creation of black identity courses. They want more black teachers hired, and they want blacks to be able to attend college in the state without paying tuition. Um, well, none of those recommendations have any support within any reasonably performed scientific literature as benefiting Black Americans. Um, so, you know, for people interested in reading this piece, it's, it's on the it's on the California on your mind um, website on Hoover, and um, uh, it's it's it strikes me as just be, it being incredibly sad because as we speak, there are a lot of Black kids in this state that. California, which is going to spend $23,000, roughly speaking, per household, the state budget spends about $23,000 per household, is abjectly failing thousands, tens of thousands of Black kids, tens of thousands of other kids who are stuck in poorly performing schools. The solution is there for the taking, but there's a very cozy political nexus involving the state's political leadership and teachers unions, as Bill noted, um, the, in which um, making those types of reforms becomes politically undoable. Um, if more people knew this, uh, there'd be a lot more pressure to improve schools. But sadly, sadly, the reparations committee, I think, is completely misfired. Lee, the same day that your column ran, uh, Joel Kotkin, who is a uh, longtime voice on California topics, he's, by the way, the brother of <clears throat> Stephen Kotkin, who is a colleague of ours here at the Hoover Institution. Uh, Joel wrote a column that appeared uh, website unheard.com, that's U-N-H-E-R-D, unheard.com, and two words stand on the headline of this column. Number one, the word absurdity when it comes to California slave reparations bill, and the other one, Lee, is distraction. And here's what Joel points out. First, number one, California never was a slave state. Uh, it was a home to about 1,500 enslaved people in 1852, but a year later, we became a free state. So we're not exactly Dixie in that regard. Second thing Joel points out is if you look at racial discrimination, 
in California, especially in the 19th century, Native Americans, uh, old Californios, who are descendants of Mexican Spanish settlers, and most of all, Asians, who are actually banned from, loan and, uh, from land ownership and subject to uh, various points to very brutal pogroms. Um, they got uh, treated very brutally. So where's their reparations, you might ask? Second thing uh, Joel points out is actually in the early 1920s, uh, Blacks uh, who moved to Californians did pretty well for themselves. They found jobs in industry, especially uh, aircraft, automobile, construction economies. Uh, Ralph Bunchy once uh, called Black people eating high, high up off the hog in California. So not necessarily a slave existence then. But here's what Joel gets into, which I found interestingly from an economic standpoint. He looked at just raw numbers. So California 1980 Lee had a Black population of about 8%. Um, more recently, it's guessed it's closer to about five and a half percent since 2020. Uh, since 2000, Lee, you look at Los Angeles, the black populations dropped by about 80,000 individuals from 11 percent to 8 uh, percent. South Central Los Angeles, South Central being the, uh, the home of the King riots in 1992. Uh, it's now mostly it's now majority Latino. There's also just a growing gap um, in terms of home ownership, uh, income and educational attainment. Um, what Joel goes on to talk about is the black exit from California, especially as we see from progressive cities. Gavin Newsom, our intrepid governor who supports the idea of reparations, he uh, was once mayor of a city of San Francisco. Uh, Lee, in 1970, San Francisco's population, about one in seven San Franciscans were black. Today, Lee, it's about one in 20. Uh, in fact, there was a film, make, uh, film out a couple of years ago, a movie called The Last Black Man in San Francisco, lamenting what happened to black existence. So you add those things up, Lee, and you kind of question why. Why are we dealing with you know, an issue from the 19th century that didn't necessarily impact California the way it did elsewhere? But then secondly, Lee, it gets into what I like to talk about, the sins of the present and what you alluded to in education. Let me throw these numbers at you guys. Uh, Stanford's Graduate School of Education. It's done a lot of research into the so-called black-white academic achievement gap. It did a study not too long ago. It looked at the 41 largest school districts in America. Uh, it found in those 41, in 14 of those districts, the gap was actually narrowing. In other words, black uh, achievement was improving. Uh, but this is not the case in three California districts that were on that list of 41. Here's what researchers found in terms of the black-white achievement gap. Uh, in San Diego, uh, that achievement gap is going to double by the year 2026. In other words, whites continue to improve on achievement, blacks do not. In, Los, in Long Beach, Long Beach Unified, it's gonna double by 2031. In LAUSD, the Los Angeles Unified School District, the second largest school district in America, the gap's not gonna double until 2094, but still we see this trend. So Lee, we're talking about again, sins of the past slavery, a terrible thing that America would never wanna experience again. And it's not a, not a happy chapter of our history, but I look at the black existence at present and I see specifically you're a black and Californian, you're trying to struggle in terms of your existence. You can't afford to buy a home and your kid's getting a second rate education in America. So I'm just wondering, Lee, 50 or 100 years from now, you know, will another generation of Black Americans be able to sue for reparations, saying that the California of the 2020s, you know, essentially treated my kid to a second-class existence? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Joel, Joel made a number of incredibly strong points. Um, and again, from a functional perspective of trying to make sure the remarkable opportunities that are available in the United States can be accessed by everyone. <laughs> The report completely fails. It completely misfires because it's not focusing on what is relevant today for poor Black families or for poor Latino families or for poor Asian families or for, or for poor non-Latino white families. That is the issue. Um, this is not a Black issue. It is an issue about access and providing public goods and services that are going to be commensurate with every household having an opportunity. Um, so I think there's a silly part to the pro to the to that report. I didn't I didn't write about that, but there's a silliness where the committee is incredibly proud of themselves for having found, you know, I think less than a handful of instances where a Californian had returned um, uh, a black slave who had escaped from the South back to the back to back to Dixie. Okay. They found two or three examples of this. And somehow that is supposed to form the foundation of what we do today in 2022. I just I just don't see that. And at some level, I think people who are of a Japanese descent who are interred and in, during World War II in California, um, 
people of Chinese descent, the Chinese coolies who worked on the railroads back in the day, um, uh, Mexicans who were brought to California in the 1950s during what's known as the Bracero program, who were sprayed with DDT to kill pests that they may have been bringing in, mm-hmm. including being sprayed DDT in their faces and having gasoline poured on them um, to, quote, sterilize them. Um, you know, if you want to talk about past injustices to people that are still living, those are the individuals we should be talking about. But why not simply just say, let's try to make this, let's make this state work. Let's make this state work for poor people, for families that are struggling. So, you know, the, the, the report, I think, is it's at some level silly. Um, and I think the... Um, I think the problem, I think the mistake Newsom made is he appointed a committee that was so committed uh, as their cause celebra that they were simply in the echo chamber and they were simply looking in the mirror when they wrote this report and never thought about, hey, how's, how's a neutral person going to feel about this? Will, they, will, will this resonate with them? And I can't imagine this is going to resonate with hardly anyone. So the report that was issued was an interim report. Um, I don't know when the next report is due, but um, but this, I think, uh, is going to fall. I think this falls in the lead balloon category. You know, if, you follow, if you follow the O.J. Simpson trial uh, back in the 1990s, uh, at one point, uh, Simpson's defense lawyers uh, thought they had a problem. Well, they had a lot of problems, obviously. Uh, but one problem they thought was here was a uh, very prominent black athlete who in some regards, left the black community. Uh, he had married a white woman. He was now playing golf at the Riviera Country Club, living in uh, Brentwood in Los Angeles. And they decided that, you know, to appeal to the jury, they needed to show that uh, OJ was sufficiently black. And so they went into his house and kind of put up all sorts of knickknacks to show that he was black, just underscore that he is a black man being prosecuted by the government. Uh, I ask this because when we look at reparations, Lee, there's a question of who gets the reparations. And this is a little complicated in the black community. I assume you would have to show that you're a descendant of slavery, that somehow you've been personally affected by slavery. Um, so Willie Brown, let's say, the former mayor of San Francisco who moved to California from Jim Crow, Texas, I assume there is you know, a slavery connection. Condoleezza Rice, our boss here at the Hoover Institution, she might be able to prove uh, some sort of trauma if she wanted to. What about Kamala Harris, though? Kamala Harris is black, but she is descended. Her father is Jamaican, if I understand. So maybe there's a slavery connection through how his uh, ancestors got to Jamaica. But again, it's just sort of, I can just see kind of sort of some complicated way of showing that I've been personally affected by slavery. And again, Lee, just the focus should be living on the here and now. And it's pretty simple. Those that would be for black Californians who live in poverty or in a poverty situation where they're trying to get out, uh, especially their kids. So that ties into schools. But then secondly, for black Americans who are not necessarily impoverished, but they too are trying to climb the ladder. So how can they buy a house? How can they afford food and gasoline? Just what are we doing for them? And again, I just don't think going back to 1865 is the answer to their current problems. Um, it's not. It's not. And um, and I suspect that most people, including those who are very, very liberal, are going to think Yes, what happened at that time was completely horrible and awful, but somehow the recommendations that are coming out of this, as in, you know, genetically proved that you were related to someone in some way related to U.S. slavery, um, just seems seems counterproductive. Um, let's help all who are in this state achieve achieve the California dream. Um, and Bill, you know, it's interesting when you point out, um, you know, Willie Brown, um, when you look, uh, there's a big divide, there's a growing divide. I, I suspect we'll start seeing more of this um, in the media, but there's a growing divide among the politics of, um, in terms of surveys, in terms of how they vote, in terms of black males and black women. Um, you see people like Snoop Dogg um, supporting conservative politicians um you see other supporting caruso in the mayor's race yeah (laughs) yeah with rick caruso and you see ice cube um ice cube supporting conservative politicians um and and saying we are black men and um the democratic party has not delivered for us we still have more people in jail than we have in college um we still have more black men in poverty um that's completely unacceptable from the standpoint of the wealth of the American society. 
these are all legitimate points and they are hitting the nail on the head when they say politicians are not delivering for us. We are going to look elsewhere. We don't particularly care if it's an R or a D, if it's a white or a black or an Asian. We want people who have ideas that are going to help us out. Um, and, and black women seem to be more committed to the Democratic Party. Um, so that'll be an interesting dynamic that plays out, I think, between now and November. Will be. Uh, gentlemen, let's conclude this pod- podcast by talking uh, a little bit about California's place in national politics. Uh, Los Angeles is the venue for this week's Summit for the Americas, in which President Biden and Vice President Harris are both attending. Several Latin American leaders are not attending, including Mexico's Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who is protesting the presidents of Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua, not receiving invitations. Um, as a sidebar, uh, this, is the, this is only the second time Joe Biden has visited California since last September um, when Gavin Newsom faced his recall election. Does the, way, does the White House take uh, California for granted uh, in that the Golden State will always deliver on, ele- on the electoral and fundraising fronts for the Democratic Party, or can the relationship be better and really be a boon for, Bi- for Joe Biden's legacy, especially if he can help address wi- wildfires, uh, deteriorating infrastructure, um, homelessness, and the like? Well, the answer is, uh, is California neglected uh, compared to past president, uh, Democratic presidents in particular? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> I did a little uh, homework on this because I, I just I've always been fascinated by this topic. Uh, Barack Obama visited California seven times in his first two years in office. Bill Clinton visited 14 times in his first two years of office. But that was the early 1990s when the state had just flipped Democratic and uh, statewide elections. And Clinton was just absolutely making sure that he had California locked down for his reelection. So thus the added interest. Biden obviously doesn't have that concern about California going red anytime soon. So he has been out here. Let's see. The last time he came out was uh, last September, right on the eve of the recall. He did an event up in Sacramento to talk about wildfires. Um, But otherwise, his administration is kind of absent in California. Well, his son does live in Los Angeles, but Hunter Biden is another story for another day, I suppose. Um, But you don't see the California love that you did with Bill Clinton or even Obama. Uh, It's not really that heavily populated in the cabinet. He does have a vice president as California, but she has her own problems as well. She comes out here more often than he does, but even she doesn't make that much news. And so it's been very interesting to see just how the administration is not really devoted attention to California. And if you're a California Democrat, this is probably frustrating in two regards. Number one, as you mentioned, Jonathan, wildfires. We cannot get enough money from the federal government to uh, to spend for wildfire prevention and containment. Uh, But the second one is a really iffy future of high-speed rail. The anticipation was when Joe Biden came to office from the Democratic Congress, they would send billions and billions and billions of dollars our way to help us build our high-speed choo-choo. And that hasn't been the case because of the complicated uh, politics of Washington these days. And so it's really the question of what the president's doing for California. And it just kind of crossed my mind because he was out in uh, Los Angeles this week attending the Conference of the Americas. And you're right, without Mexico and Participating, it's sort of like the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles, where, where the Soviet Union and Cuba didn't bother to show up. So kind of an emptiness to it and kind of an empty relationship with California as well. You will see more of him uh, maybe in the next few months for one reason, and that's money, M-O-N-E-Y. The Democrats could need a bunch of it in 2022 and 2024. Uh, no place like California to come raise money. Maybe he'll do a few events, but California is just not on a man's radar screen. I think, again, he is dominated by larger concerns, and that would be the economy and inflation. Yeah, the Democratic Party, Biden-Harris, um, I mean, they look at, at, at one level, they look as California as a given. It, it is. So they probably need to be elsewhere from the standpoint of priorities until Bill, as you know, until it comes to money, because California is the home of a lot of Democratic donor money. Um, you know, Biden is, uh, I mean, I, it's hard to know where to begin with his issues. He um his approval rating is now <clears throat> below 40%, according to the latest poll. If you look at an average of poll results, which 538 looks at, and they try to quality adjust those polls, some are more representative than others. Biden's approval rating isn't below 40%, but it's at 40.2%. Um, Kamala Harris has an approval rating of below 40%. So these are just these are numbers that are just that are. These are numbers that um, spell death for the Democratic Party in the coming elections. Um, 
Trump's approval numbers were at the same time. If, you, if one looks at you know 538.com, they're a little bit higher than Biden. Um, but when you look at Trump's approval numbers, you know that seven or eight of those percentage points, maybe more, were people that, that just couldn't stand him personally for whatever reason. They were not based on policy issues. So you look at Biden and you look at 8% inflation, the highest inflation in the last 40 years and an inflation that has been engineered by US government institutions. Um, and Biden and Janet Yellen um, now have egg on their faces for saying about a year ago, any seri- there's no serious economist that thinks this inflation will not be over in a couple of months. That's what Biden said. Right. Yellen said in congressional testimony last year, this is transitory related to some supply chain issues and a few volatile prices, and we will be back to trend inflation, meaning 2% inflation very shortly. Yeah. Now Yellen is saying, I was wrong. Yeah, yes, she, yes she, she was wrong. And I would say every serious economist knew she was going to be wrong. There was no chance that this was going to be a transitory once-in-a-lifetime inflation. We are dealing, <clears throat> and Yellen now says, get ready for you know a significant slash prolonged period of inflation. I don't know what she believe what she thinks that's going to be, but from my perspective, that's going to be at least six to nine months more of eight percent inflation, maybe higher. Um, you're looking at slowing economic growth. So really the worst thing any president can face is rising inflation and a, and a bad real economy. And that's what's going on now. You've got a one foot out, one foot in the boat, Ukraine policy, one foot on the dock, Ukraine policy, where we have, we're going to be spending a minimum of $53 billion to help the Ukrainians. Right. And, um, you know, there's a reasonable debate to be had about how the U.S. should view this. I mean, my perspective is that Putin needs to understand that the rest of the world, particularly the United States, is not going to stand for this type of behavior. But this can't go on forever, and we can't continue to spend $50 billion here, $50 billion there. Um, personally, I think it could have been resolved early on had the U.S. been more aggressive. Um, but, you know, but, but Biden's problems, there's, there's, really no, there's really no end to them. And Bill, an interesting Wall Street Journal survey, um, this is one that's not done by other polling agencies, but the Wall Street Journal asked people, what, um, would you favor Biden running? And do you think he will run for a second term? Um, even though Biden says he will be running, and of course he has to say that, three quarters of the people say they don't think he will. And over half say they would not welcome him to run again. So again, these are kind of death knell numbers. And the Democratic Party is going to need a lot of dollars in California, believe the source of those dollars. But at some point, even the most ardent Democrats are going to ask, okay, so what are we achieving? What are we trying to do? What are we doing? And are we, are, we, are, are we meeting any of our goals? And the answer to that are going to be, we don't really have a cohesive strategy for anything we're doing. And making life better, no, inflation's way up, the economy's down, the federal deficit is an all-time high. Um, but I still want you to open your checkbook. Um, yeah. I don't know, Bill, you think, you think they are? You think they're going to continue to write those big checks? Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm interested what you think about where, where will the new ideas from the Democratic Party come from? I mean, they're, they have to be very, very anxious about this. Yeah, so it's interesting, Lee. So both parties are going through an identity crisis right now, both national parties. Republicans struggle mightily with the question of whether or not they are the party of Donald Trump, and that'll play out into 2023 and 2024 and what he decides to do vis-a-vis running again. But the Democrats have an identity crisis too, Lee, which you alluded to, in that they're not the party of Joe Biden. Um, I'm in the camp he is not going to run for re-election. He'll be 81 going on 82. It's not going to be a very pretty picture. I'm not sure he has the wherewithal to run a vigorous campaign. I don't think he'll look good in his close-up. So, and I think Democrats understand this. And, you know, another way to put this is I think Joe Biden Lee is something of a prom tuxedo rental. <laughs> Democrats are going to wear him for the you know remainder of now to 2024 and look for something else. So the question is who? 
I would point you to Gavin Newsom in this regard. Look at Newsom's tweets on the uh, right after the primary. Here's what he wrote. Let me read it back to you, fellows. Quote, across the country, Republicans are attacking our fundamental rights as Americans, destroying democracy, stripping a woman of the right to choose and standing idly by as gun violence claims far too many lives. Dot, dot, dot. California is the anecdote, leading with compassion, common sense and science, treasuring diversity, defending democracy and protecting our planet. Here's to continuing that fight. Okay, Lee and Jonathan, let's parse this a little bit. So Gavin is saying that California is what the nation should be, the anecdote in his words. Well, what is compassion? Lee, we just talked about that. That's reparation for slavery. Um, common sense, I would argue that that leads you into, let's say, our, our fossil fuel approach that common sense dictates. It's far better to be less reliant upon fossil fuels. And so that gets you in a situation in California where you're far too dependent upon renewables, which means we have blackouts in the summer times. So that doesn't hold up. And then finally, science, Lee, that's code words for what? COVID lockdown policy. So that's not a winning ticket, I think, if I'm a Democrat going around and talking about the California thing. Uh, moving further, by the way, defending democracy, attacking Republicans for democracy. I'm kind of curious how the governor squares that up against Georgia, uh, home of the supposed uh, Jim Crow 2.0 voting rights laws, which had a record turnout in its primary. So I think just Gavin Newsom creates a lot of hot air in California. I don't think it holds up necessarily well outside of California's borders. And I don't think this is an example moving forward. Now, Newsom might have a pretty good standing in primaries if he ran. But again, if I'm Ron DeSantis, let's say in 2024, I'm licking my chops at the opportunity to run against that guy in a general election, which is kind of, I think, funny, which is one of the reasons why you see DeSantis and Newsom constantly going at it on Twitter with each other. Uh, if I'm a voter in another state, I just want to ask my governor, gee, sir, just pay attention to your state. Stick to the day job. This has been very interesting and timely analysis. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at BillWhalenCA. And Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Ohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also, check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroidis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts, or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.